Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so let's get started. Hey there. Today we're talking about an item of clothing that we've all really become quite acquainted with this year. Of course, it's the face mask. Now, according to the New York Times, there are some 100,000 varieties of face masks that are currently on the market. They come in all sorts of sizes and shapes and made with a wide variety of fabrics and filters. But what commercially available masks don't have, however, is any kind of a label that tells you how good they are at blocking infectious particles from going either in or out of our mouth and nostrils there really isn't any governmental oversight about the quality of the masks we wear. Now, as you remember, back in March of 2020, the general public wasn't even encouraged to wear masks. Then in April, the FDA issued an emergency measure about masks and started to encourage us to actually wear them. But there weren't many guidelines about mask quality. Commercial production and sales of face masks skyrocketed, but it was sort of a free-for-all in terms of quality of masks. And we are still sort of in that wild west of masks, aren't we? This is going to change soon because the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, they have been working for a while now on developing minimum filter efficiency standards for face masks. And it's predicted that industry standards for masks are going to be made public sometime in January of 2021. So when this happens, it'll probably result in masks coming with some sort of a label attached to them, indicating their relative effectiveness. But that's a month or more away. What are we supposed to do in the meantime? Well, today's episode might help you decide which type of mask is most effective. Now, of course, the whole point of wearing a mask is to protect others from the aerosols and the viral particles that are coming out of our mouth and nose. And, of course, it's also to protect ourselves from breathing in the virus. But how do we measure a mask's ability to do those things? Today, we have an interview with two renowned scientists from Duke University. They'll be discussing their highly noted research article that was published on September 2nd, 2020, in the journal Science Advances. The title of this article is Low-Cost Measurement of Face Mask Efficacy for Filtering Expelled Droplets During Speech. Now, this interview is facilitated by WFMP's very own programming coordinator and longtime broadcaster, Ruth Newman. Ruth has been with WFMP from the very beginning of the station, I believe, and When I first tuned in, she was host of a great show called Reach Out in the Darkness. And more recently, she has been hosting a very insightful show called Election Connection. I want to thank Ruth Newman for making this interview possible. Take it away, Ruth. Hello, everybody. 
This is Ruth Newman. Normally, I'm host of Election Connection on your very own community radio station, WFMP 106.5 FM. However, being that the November 3rd election has concluded, so has my show. Today, I'm here with your regular host of Bench Talk, Dave Robinson, and we have two very special guests. Martin Fisher, Associate Research Professor in the Department of Chemistry and Physics at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, and Eric Westman, MD, Associate Professor of Medicine at Duke University as well. So welcome both of you to Bench Talk. Good to have you. Thank um, you. As we know or should know, all face masks are not created equal, right? So Dr. Fisher and Dr. Westman, along with colleagues at Duke, recently came up with a rigorous test procedure for comparing how well different types of face masks protect from those droplets that we discharge just by the simple act of talking and, and even breathing let alone coughing and sneezing. And these droplets can, as everyone knows, harbor coronavirus. So maybe we could start out by asking, what got you guys going on this quest to determine the best and the worst face masks? Well, the old saying, necessity is the mother of invention, rang true because we were faced with making our own community face masks in early 2020 when there were no face masks available, face coverings in North Carolina really to speak of. And we wanted to reserve the ones that were hospital grade to the hospital. So we helped out making community masks and asking volunteers and even professionals who were out of work to make these masks. And we, we'd be getting very interesting types of materials because we didn't know, really have any guidance as to what best material and how to make the mask. So we'd be getting one layer of a bandana-like material or, or a neck gaiter or a cloth mask with one or two layers or three layers. And um, then there was a mattress factory even that retooled its polypropylene material. Turns out mattresses are made of a material very similar to what's in a standard N95 hospital-grade mask. Mattresses factory in our area started making them you know, in high volume. And so we tried to get it to the community members who, who were unable to get their own masks. So we had a connection to the underserved population in Durham, even supplied the prisons and nursing homes, places that had no availability. But then it occurred to me that we don't really know if these masks work. So I saw this very brief report in the New England Journal of Medicine where a group at NIH took a laser beam and shown it and then had someone speak through the laser. You could see all these particles coming out and it was just speaking. I thought, yeah, like coughing and sneezing, we know that spreads all that stuff, but just speaking might do that. And then that brief report just showed that he put a piece of cloth over his face and all of the particles stopped. You couldn't see them in the laser. So, you know, I rang up my university colleagues over at the chemistry physics department and Dr. Fisher was very interested in this idea of using lasers and he's an expert in that. And so I came to him and said, well, you know, could we replicate a um, laser masks apparatus to test all of these different masks we now had? I mean, I didn't want to give out 
bad masks to the community. And then we finally got enough GoFundMe or other doctors were funding. We had enough money to purchase masks. And there was one that was sent to us that was made out of this material that, that you could kind of see through. And, and so it was all, you know, trying to make sure that what we were making had some quality control. But then also the really, to me, the surprising fact that you might actually be spraying particles when you speak. So, so that's when I, I called Marvin. Maybe you could take the story from here, Dr. Fisher. Yeah, thanks for the introduction. It was actually a really fun project because, as Dr. Westman pointed out, mask is not really what I do. I'm a microscopist. I'm a, I'm a trained laser scientist. So here's this project that has the potential to really make a difference and to actually help people. So Dr. Westman's a doctor. He helps people every day. I'm a physicist and a chemist, so how often does that come along, that opportunity to really make a difference? So I really jumped at this. The problem, of course, was this was during the lockdown. So all the labs were shut down, so I couldn't actually get into the lab officially. So I had to pull some strings. I had to call the vice president of research, and I had to ask to my deans to get a, a permission to just go into the lab. And the second challenge was, this is the kind of experiment with, that you really shouldn't or can't do alone because somebody has to speak through a mask and somebody needs to operate the camera, the laser. So I needed somebody. So taking a student into the lab, of course, is not an option either because you couldn't really socially distance in that environment. So I ended up taking my daughter with me, who happens to be a, an undergraduate at Duke. So I told her about the project and she was all excited. Yes, yes, I definitely want to go. So because it was the same household, it still is the same household, I got permission to take my daughter and to set this up. So we went, it was the weekend actually, because we wanted to go at a time where nobody else is around. It was pretty sparsely populated anyway, but during the weekend, there was nobody there. So we started setting this up. We took things that we had lying around. We didn't have any time to buy anything or no funding for it either. So I took a laser from another setup. We built a box. We used lots of duct tape to make this enclosure. And we tried this out. And after a couple of iterations, we saw some beautiful flashes of light. When, when you speak through a laser beam and these flashes of light disappeared, when you had a mask on. So that's how this whole thing got started. Could you basically describe how you measured the mask's efficiency? So sure. The way we measure these masks is we do two measurements. We do one without mask and one with a mask. So generally, when you speak, you emit particles. These particles fly out of your mouth and we have a setup that has a sheet of laser light in front of you. Imagine this being a sheet that is right in front of your face. And when you speak, the particles that you emit travel through that laser beam. And when they traverse that laser beam, they basically scatter light and you see flashes of light. So you see little star patterns when these droplets go through that light sheet. And we have a camera in the back of it, essentially just takes a video takes images of these flashes of light. So each flash is essentially one particle. And we then take that video and we analyze it and we count the number of flashes, which gives us the number of particles that get emitted. 
So of course this was done in a black box. So we made sure that there's no other light. So we know that every flash that we record in, on that camera is an actual particle. So a, a droplet. So we can't really tell how big the droplet is, but we can count the droplets. So the more droplets, the more chance you have of getting a wet particle. So then we do two measurements, one without the mask as a baseline, because you want to know how much particle come out of you under no mask conditions, because everybody's a little different. Some people have a little more emission, a little wet speech, some less. So, and then after we have the baseline, we put the mask on and then we measure again. So that ratio of the number of droplets with mask and without the mask, that's essentially a, a transmission, right? So zero means all the particles get stuck in the mask. So you basically see no particles when you have a mask on. And the more particles get through the mask, the higher that ratio. So that's one run. And of course, we repeat this. For every mask, we did 10 repetitions. So to get a little statistics, we only tried this with one person for all the masks. So we had a range of masks, 14, I believe. So we tried all of those with one person and 10 runs each. And then for a subset of those masks, for example, the mask that we had in duplicate, we did with four speakers, just to get an idea of how variable it is between speakers. And was it variable? So yes, it is variable. So the first variable, of course, is the amount of particles that you emit during speech. It depends very much on, depends on how loud you talk, depends on what you speak. So we tried, of course, to keep that as constant as we could. So we always had the same sentence, stay healthy people. We also try to have sort of a uniform volume, but of course there's only so much you can control. So the, the number of particles emitted, that varied by about a factor of five between these four people. However, because we did the same measurement with the same person with and without the mask, that relative variation between speakers wouldn't really matter because you always take the same speaker with mask compared to the same speaker without the mask. So that's um, the variability so between speakers. Now, of course, it also depends for a good mask, depends on the fit of the mask. For example, the medical N95 mask, if you've ever been fitted for an N95 mask, you know, if you have a beard, you're gonna have a real problem with getting that mask to fit really tightly. So everybody's gonna have their mask on a little different, some have a little more volume to it. So yes, there is variability for the person and the variability between how people wear the mask, how the mask fits on that particular face. I also had a question on the nose. Did you measure anything at all coming out of the nose or was this just specifically focused on the mouth? So we only tested speaking and the mask that we had had always covered the nose and the mouth. So we did not test any breathing, mouth breathing versus nose breathing. We only tested speech. And of course, speech, obviously, it comes through the mouth, right? Yes. And I just want to say that I don't know about North Carolina, but here in Louisville, I notice a lot of people who wear their masks below the nose. When I go shopping, I'm assuming, and you correct me if I'm wrong, that 
just in, in normal breathing, that can also be a danger as well. That is also true, Dr. Westman, that breathing too can disperse viruses and droplets. Martin, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know that that's really been directly tested. And so I was one of the subjects in the, the study because, again, we couldn't recruit people. The whole university was on lockdown. So I would go down to the basement of the physics department and and, and the, you know, the radiation signs and go in. And so I'm sitting in front of this box with a hole in it and I'm speaking into it and I see these particles. But if I'm just sitting there and I'm breathing, and I, you know, I had some downtime between trials. Uh, I didn't see a whole lot of activity in the black box. I'm not so harsh on the, I'm not going around, you put that over your nose, you know, because the particle stuff tends to come out, unless you have a runny nose and you're, you're emitting nasal secretions. I don't know that there's a whole lot of transmission there from the just breathing normally. Now, you know, as, as people are jogging by me, you know, in town going, <laughs> I go to the other side of the street. So a lot of those questions are, are really good ones. And certainly if there's any doubt for me, what's the big deal about putting it over your nose? I mean, I would err on the side of caution, but that's another study. I think we've generated more questions than answers. And if for no other reason than to keep you from catching it from someone else through your well, nose, hopefully it helps in that regard, going in the opposite direction. Yes, and, and that's an important point that we want to clarify that up until now, all of the masks were being tested only for the person who wears the mask, not for protecting against community spread. So in fact, one of the masks that we were testing had a test that looked really great because it was a low pressure inhalation sort of system that was used to test the mask, to protect the wearer. But when that mask was tested to stop particles so that it would protect other people, that mask didn't perform very well. So the use in a hospital, you want to be very careful and, and use something that protects the wearer, you know, 100%. But if you're trying to reduce community spread, you don't need a perfect mask. And, and some masks, like the N95s with a valve on it without a filter, that actually doesn't block the particles at all for the community spread. Yeah. to protect other people, but it would protect the individual wearing it. And I know that gets confusing, and I'm afraid that's part of the reason why it's complicated. Yeah, it is, and that's the reason why I'm really glad you're here to help unravel it for us. Anyone listening to this show is going to want to know, well, what's the answer? You looked at 14 different masks, and I guess the N95 looked the best, and the worst was the neck gaiter which is sort of like a tube that goes around the neck and you pull up, that appeared to be the lowest performer. We should say it's a single layer neck gaiter and the single layer bandana did the worst, yeah. And we even thought maybe the single layers made things worse because there seemed to be more particles and, and you know, Science, you always want to have replication, right? So the hallmark of science is replication. I haven't seen the neck gator finding of it, making it worse that we found replicated yet. And there was a lot of backlash about, is it the neck gator itself, the style, or is it the material? And I think we think that it's the material because it was only a single layer. If you're able to cover the nose and the mouth 
with a fabric in pretty much any way and the fabric is good, then it will work. Uh, and I've noticed now that uh, Martin, the NetGator commercials say double layer. Have you noticed that? The ones that are advertising the products now and maybe not, you know, we help them create a product that is safer. But even then, I don't think these companies study or certify their products, you know, so we're kind of taking it on good faith that these are going to be helpful. And I think we can say the thicker they are, N95s were the best, but we still have trouble in some areas of the country today getting those PPE to hospital workers. So that's why I, I shy away from using those personally, but the surgical masks look really good. And that's what we use in the clinic. Duke Stockpile, Duke University has, you know, millions of these surgical masks. Uh, apparently, a lot of places have stockpiled in the past. They have these, and those looked really good on our testing too. But again, the difference between the community spread, it's okay to have the cloth mask, I think. The neck gaiter itself, not so good. So the cloth masks and maybe the double layer neck gaiter, they're used for you to be able to protect the people that you encounter, but not necessarily to protect yourself. Is that right? But then the N95 that they use in the hospitals are for the healthcare workers to not only protect the patient, but also to protect themselves. Is that correct? That the cloth masks are different in that regard, that they will not protect me, but it will protect somebody I encounter from my droplets. Is that what it is? No, I think you do get some protection personally as you wear them, not as much as an N95 or a hospital mask. But if you think about it, we're not trying to protect from the viral particle itself. The virus is very small, would easily get through a cloth mask. What we're protecting against is the droplet or the aerosol that the virus has carried on. We observe the cloth mask stops particles from going out. We can infer that they also stop particles going in, although we didn't directly test that. I think that's a reasonable assumption. So the cloth mask is protecting you as well. Okay. So there are those two categories. One is the droplets and one is just the airborne particulates that are not in droplets and that, you know, all bets are off on that. We're just talking about droplets. Can you clarify that difference? Because that does confuse a lot of people. Right. So when you talk about droplets versus aerosols, it really depends on who you talk to. It's really not a hard cutoff. Some people say anything above half a micron is a droplet. Anything below is an aerosol. Some people put that cutoff somewhere else. It's really a sliding scale. Generally, an aerosol is just much smaller droplets, and a droplet is something more macroscopic. So what Dr. Westman wanted to point out is these viruses don't just come by themselves. They don't fly around as single viruses. They're being carried by something, right? They're immersed in this droplet of liquid, basically. And of course, these liquid droplets, they come in all different shapes and sizes. It's not just one particular size. It's a, it's a continuum, right? And a mask has different mechanisms of filtering the small particles, they might get stuck by electrostatic attraction. The big particles are mostly just getting stuck by well, the fact that they slam into the mask and get stuck. So filtration is a very difficult subject. And it's not like a filter filters all particles the same. 
Now, these standard surgical masks, they, of course, are tested very carefully and they're optimized to catch most of those particles that usually gets out of you when you breathe, where, of course, a cotton cloth has a completely different function, right? It's, it's not made as a filter, but it acts as one. But usually the really, really small particles might have an easier time getting through a, a loose cloth material than they have through this spun fiber material that makes up a, a commercial purpose-made mask. And of course, coming back to Dr. Westman's comment, there's a big variability in mask, right? The surgical mask and the N95s, you can rest assured if you take two or three masks, they look the same. Now, if you look at neck gaiters, if you buy 10 different neck gaiters, I'm sure they perform all over the place. None of those perform the same. We've tested some neck gaiters that since the publication came out that performed much better than the one we tested. But of course, the problem is you can't really tell if somebody walks around with a neck gaiter, you can't tell if that's a good one or, or a bad one. You can't just yank it down and hold it against the light or blow through it, right? That's also the problem with standardizing these. I've gotten questions from various people from ski resorts, from other places, asking for advice. So should we allow neck gaiters or should we ban neck gaiters? There is no easy answer to this because you really can't tell. But of course, if you have 10 masks and two of those don't perform well, well, would you really want to risk this? You want to have a mask that always performs well, not some that some of them, some of the time, or for some people, they don't do well. So maybe you could kind of go down the line and give us a summary of which masks were the better ones, which masks were not so good, you know, kind of a rundown. Sure. So I will sort of put them in three categories. The N95 mask was our gold standard. We essentially could not see anything coming through that mask. So that was really the best of the best. But of course, as Dr. Westman pointed out, these are really excellent masks. And we would really like to reserve those for people who really need it, for healthcare workers, for people with pre-existing conditions that are susceptible to getting an infection because they are in, in short supply, right? You don't want to hand them out to everyone and then the people who really need it, they don't have it. Then there were surgical masks did also really well, which is really nice to see because those are the ones that most people run around in. And of course, in hindsight, it's not surprising because these were really meant for clinical use and they've been optimized, right, for exactly this purpose. They're also in the middle range, let's say, for, let's say, masks that block 80%, 90% of the droplets. There are a whole range of them. Most of those cotton masks that we tested were in that range. I wouldn't recommend them for a clinician, obviously, right? But for everyday use, these masks do just fine. I personally wear a cotton mask when I go out and run around. And if I go to the lab and I, I have to wear a mask the whole day when I'm in the lab, but a cotton mask is going to do just fine because those are comfortable. They are, you have a clip, so the glasses, they don't fog up. They do just fine. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, we have the mask that I would not feel comfortable wearing 
we already talked about those. Those were the bandanas and the neck gaiters, especially the ones that we tested, did not perform well at all. So I would not feel comfortable running around in those. And of course, I would not feel comfortable somebody being around me having these things on. But again, there's a big variety of these. There's a variation in those. So you can't tell, right? So I'd rather err on the side of caution. That was Dr. Martin Fisher, Associate Research Professor of Chemistry and Physics at Duke University in North Carolina, and Dr. Eric Westman, MD and Associate Professor of Medicine, also at Duke University. Thank you to Drs. Westman and Fisher for taking time out of their busy schedules to talk to us, and thanks again to Ruth Newman for making the interview possible. We'll broadcast the second half of the interview on next week's show. So tune in then, and hey, don't forget that mask. This has been Bench Talk, the Week in Science. Take care.